I'll kick things off with the blessing before studying. May it be your will, Adonai, our God, that a mishap not come about through us, and may we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us, and may we not say something, and may we not say regarding something which is Tameh that it is Tahor, and not regarding something which is Tahor that it is Tameh, and may we, may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law, and we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom, from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. 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 This is going to be a really fun class. I'm really excited about this. We, there's going to be a lot of discussion. So I'm going to basically go through what we're going to be talking about first. Then we're going to talk about it. And then we'll review it afterwards. So I'll, just a heads up, be thinking about it as I go through the, the class. That I'm looking to get from everyone... What are some ways that you set halakha for your family? Some of your thought processes, some of the ways that you go about doing that. Uh, so just be thinking about that. But the, the class today is going to be broken up basically by that first question. But then the next thing we're going to talk about is why I structured the class that the way that I did. And then the third thing will be basically how do we view the do like a Jew? Right, so the do is like all the stuff from Yeshua, the commandments, all of all of these like statements of you need to do this, and then the the, the last thing we'll wrap up with is sort of that practical side of the frequently repeated commandment about loving one another, and kind of flushing that out a little bit more, seeing if we can put a little bit more of a definition around that, so we can leave here tonight knowing how to better demonstrate that, how to better walk that out. Okay, so. I'd love, I, I'm really excited to hear everyone's perspective on Halakha. And, yeah. and a quick caveat, I definitely did not intend for and will try to prevent us getting into any heated debates about rabbinic authority. <laughs> rabbinic authority is really not the topic of tonight. The topic of tonight is the framework of Jewish Halakha, like how they, they see it in terms of its hierarchy and, and the way that it's connected to Torah and, and its applicability to the life of, of a Jew. So um, so that being said, if you want to get into a, a really feisty and passionate discussion about rabbinic authority, call Joshua. He's, he loves it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Oh, uh, but yeah, great. so we'll, we'll try to avoid that for tonight because that, that's, that's really off topic. So um, so yeah, who, who, uh, why don't we, yes? Don't we want the classes to be exciting? It should be exciting enough because there's there's going to be a few. I'm I'm really interested to see how you found some of these uh, some of these categories and how you determine these, especially from like the Sermon on the Mount and everything. So hopefully, it will be very exciting. But yeah, Good. rabbinic authority could be for another time with with wine and and uh, you know some peaceful songs in the background. <laughs> yeah, can um, we all be civilized about this? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So so who wants to kind of share first a little bit about. The how how you determine? In fact, why don't we, we can kind of go around this stuff? I'm really I'm really curious, right? So, in in terms of halakha, you know, you've got the entire shulchan aruch. <clears throat> Just looking around at most of us, you know, we don't really look like ultra orthodox Jews. So, like, how do how do you usually go about determining halakha for your family? I mean, making those selections of what to do now, what to reserve for later. How you go about doing that? So. Um, so I'm going to uh, make a general comment, which is more about more around terminology. <clears throat> um, my view is 
in this room makes any halakha. Amen. Because if we're going to use if we're going to use Jewish terms, we have to make sure we're being consistent with what they actually uh, what they actually mean. Halakha means something very very specific in Judaism, and uh, there's only certain people that can that can that are qualified that are that can make halakha. Right now, I know you don't want to get into the rabbinic authority discussion, mm-hmm. so we won't go there. But, um, but using the Jewish definition of halakha, nobody in this room makes halakha. What I do in my home is I have customs and I have traditions for my family. So there's halakha, which is defined, but then there's customs and traditions that. I've, I've in practices, however term you want to use, that that my family has, uh, for various reasons. Would you call that minhag or no? Minhag is probably the closest, you know, okay. um, Jewish terminology. But, but minhag would normally be for a community, it's not a, for, not just yeah. the family, right? Right. Okay. It's, uh, but I'm saying, but that would be kind of the closest. Yes. I mean, yes, my family is not a community in in the traditional sense of the right, of that term. Right, right. We are a small community, right? Yeah. <laughs> we, have, we are multiple people dwelling together, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so that would be the probably the term that I would use. Um, or takanot takanot, which I think is one of the other terms in here. Yeah. Uh, 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 takana is just a rule that's been enacted by whoever's in charge. Right. For the benefit of right. you know, whoever he is responsible for, right? So, uh, but in 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 our home, we look first to Jewish tradition, Jewish law, Jewish you know Jewish halacha, and then Jewish tradition first. Um, and and because from our perspective, there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, but then we. Uh, but then we take into account uh, the, all the current circumstances, the needs of the family, and certainly the teachings of Messiah Yeshua in particular. Uh, and then we will, you know, we will, I will institute a tradition or whatever. So, for example, um, if I'm out and about uh, and I'm going into a restaurant, Right, I do not go into uh, a restaurant with a kippa on my head because there's a 99.9% probability that the restaurant I'm going into is not a kosher restaurant according to Jewish halakha, right? Because right. it's not a hectured restaurant. And we only have one of those in town, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to go in to a non-kosher restaurant with Kipa on my head or Zitzi hanging out because in my view and the tradition in our family the custom in our family is that's a bit of a misrepresentation of what those symbols mean within normative Judaism and so I'd be I'd be kind of co-opting what that means and applying it incorrectly even though I even though 
whether I whether I have you know regardless of my level of kashrut is not really the point. The point or, is, or what you eat. Or what I eat. The point is, if I'm wearing a kippah and I have zitzi hanging out, I'm to the to the person on the street who knows anything about Judaism, which of course in the South is not many people, but um, I'm representing myself as sort of a religious Orthodox Jew. Religious Orthodox Jews don't go into non-kosher restaurants. So I would be, I would be potentially uh, really misrepresenting, regardless of my personal view of you know, kosher or whatever, I'd really be misrepresenting what most people would understand that to mean, right? So, um, so that's that is a custom in my family. We do not do that because we don't want to uh, misrepresent what those what those symbols and, and the practices that come with that traditionally mean. So. Anyway, so that's kind of a, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but that's kind of an example. Well, kind of, example. but you sort of, you sort of touch on, like, where mm -hmm. I was getting at, because that, that was, that was helpful clarification, because as I kind of mentioned in the class, like, the, the term halakha is really, like, the, that's the Jewish term for law, but the difference between the way that they understand law and the way that Christianity or other religions would understand law is that absolutely 100% includes oral Torah. When they say law, that is like inclusive of, of all oral Torah, which encompasses all halakha. So, so that's, that's very helpful. But like that, the example that you gave actually touches on a little bit more of what I was thinking. So how do you determine that you go into a kosher restaurant, which actually breaks orthodox halakha? Non-kosher. Or non-kosher restaurant. Yeah. Like that's kind of what I'm yeah, getting so at, right? So, so like, because so I certainly don't keep all halakha from Judaism. Sure. And that's, that's what I was, that was kind of with the point was like I don't think I any of us do. Jews. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. But but like, which ones do you pick and why? And yeah. the ones that you don't do, why? And right. that's kind of so that's that was what I was. So so I'll just stick with that example. Sure, sure. Right. That's so a good one. Yeah. We eat in non-kosher restaurants. Okay. Why do we do that? Well, because with our current lifestyle and as much as you know I travel a lot and as much as my wife is taking kids to and fro or whatever we're just gonna be out and somebody's gonna get hungry and you know and we're just gonna have to stop and eat somewhere right yeah, yeah. so uh, but uh, because we we do um, only eat textured meat our custom is if we go into a restaurant, right? So if we walk into a whatever, a Panera or a Picura, you know, a Chili's or whatever, we are only ordering vegetarian. So we're only ordering typically salads or fish if they have fish, right? Yeah. And that, and, and by the way, that's still not that still would not meet the kashrut standards of traditional yeah. Judaism, yeah. and we know that. Yeah. But the, that's the compromise that we're choosing to make, okay. and because it would be an un, it, it would be an exceptionally undue burden on my family if I if we tried to um, if we tried to have strict mm. observance there, per, per, you know, yeah. particularly since there's only one Hexer restaurant in in town, uh, and we don't live anywhere close to it. And, and then again, just you know, given the travel schedule or whatever. So, 
So we do. So that is the reason why we eat in un, in unhectored restaurants. Uh, but when we're in a restaurant, we only eat vegetarian. We do not eat meat. <coughs> we certainly don't eat meat and dairy. Mm-hmm. So right. and so that's that's where we're at, and that's mm-hmm. what works for our family currently. But that's not. We're not keeping halakhah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. That that's that's very helpful. So that that key term there. I think is probably a common thread that we've all so we've how, all experienced is that like huge un, almost unnecessary burden we would place if, if we tried to, to keep something all the way right so that's that's a good key keyword there so before it comes to me to make it like Greg was saying halakha you have to be orthodox well no or no halakha the code of Jewish law mm-hmm. that came out in roughly 1500 mm-hmm is a codification of the halakha. As we read the word of God, we find out what God wants us to do. Mm-hmm. According to Orthodox Judaism, the Shulchan Aruch teaches us how we do it. It's as simple as that. It doesn't tell you why. It doesn't tell you where we find this. Mm-hmm. It's their understanding of how you practice what God said to do. Simple as that. If that's your standard, he can't go into that restaurant. Mm. If that's not your standard, and and you're you're gauging because of burdens, family obligations, and so forth, then you know you're making your own rules. Mm. At, at least as as I would like you it. said, the minhag. Right. A little bit, yeah, a little bit of the minhag. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Let me let me. Uh, yeah, we, we don't have to necessarily... Yeah, necessarily. We can jump around. Yeah, let me, <laughs> let me tell you what my family's doing. Yeah. Um, I, I was impressed with, with Rick Spurlock's um, study on the, on the whole question of, of what we do with the commands. What was the name of that? Traditions. Well, isn't that uh, a good name? Yeah. So the tradition study... And if I recall correctly, he had uh, three bellwethers that you could use on any halakhic question. The first was whether or not it uh, promoted our love and honor of Yeshua. Uh, the second, I may be getting these wrong, you help me if I, if I mess up. The second was uh, whether or not it helped us to join with uh, and appreciate the people of God, the Word of God, and uh, the land that God gave to His people, and to join with Israel, if you will. And third, whether or not it, you know, it specifically violated any kind of command of Scripture or appeared to do so. So, if if it was good in those in those regards, then uh, why would you not want to do it? Mm. Was basically the the, the bottom line. What was the third one? I, I, the one I'm saying is not right. Well, I think, I think, well, I haven't looked at this in a really long time. Yeah, I me, think me, his me. point was, like, violating commandments, yes, but more focused, specific, but because that's kind of... Oh, oh, it would dissuade us from keeping a command or something like well, that. Well, I think it was more focused on the idea, wasn't it more focused on the idea of division? Because, I mean, it was that, yeah, kind of inherently, all the, the command, all the hala halakha is supposed to be intended to help you keep the commandments. Sometimes it's a more lenient approach to a commandment, but... I mean, it's all based on, yeah. you know. But sometimes it's a really, really strict 
of interpretation of a commandment that would be divisive between Jews and Gentiles. Right. That's what it was. Like between Jews being and able Gentiles. to eat yeah. with them or yeah. being or able to drink between, a glass of wine that they handed you. Even I mean, between Jews and Jews. Yeah. Sure, sure. sure. I mean, exactly. Even within the Orthodox community, there are some who are more machmir on things like kashrut right. where yeah. right. they wouldn't be comfortable eating in another Orthodox Jew's Sure. Um, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, or or having a an, an Orthodox Jew come into your home, if he if that was going to make him unclean, right. Prior perhaps to Passover, which you might get into later. Right. right. Um, yeah. So, that's been our our guideline, uh, okay. for as many years as I can remember. Um, at the same time, we balance that with the community, with the Bellator community. But there's no question that, like Greg, I'm the authority for my family, and I'm going to do what I believe is best for my family. And if I'm wrong, God can take it out on me and spare my family. Um, I do think it's kind of curious and amazingly wonderful that in Bellatora we've got pretty much three elders and three different ways of looking at kosher meat and it's been that way since we started so you separate milk and dairy period milk and meat. meat meat and dairy period um, where I only separate red meat and dairy and Rick only doesn't separate at all as I understand so here's officially right red so meat. here's three guys who've come at it in three different ways. I don't have a problem with that. I, I think that's I, I think that's beautiful actually that you know we're representing the spectrum of, of those that are here. Now how Scott does it or how Jonathan does it, you know, and, and how Todd does it, you know, that that's not the question. It's that we're making decisions for our families. Um, I completely agree with that, but I do think it's important um, because I because my my current view is that much of messianic whatever whatever label we want to use has the terminology incorrect and misuses the terminology a lot. I believe that's true. So you know, I'd like to see Bellatora make sure we're being consistent. And true to what the actual terms mean, because terms aren't defined. You can't change the meaning right. of the terms. That's true. So, so for example, the halakha. The halakha is unquestioned. The halakha is no meat and dairy. Right. You know, if if a particular family chooses to do something different, that's great. Right. But don't say you're keeping the halakha. Exactly. We're right. doing and, and, and I would, their halakha. Right. And I apologize if I use the term halakha. Um, the minhag for the community is right. that when we have oneg, we don't do meat. Right. Unless we're having a special occasion in which we're specifically doing meat. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. So we don't do meat. So everybody knows when they bring an oneg dish, it's going to be parv. Or it's going to be dairy, right. period. And that you know, the only people who bring the meat are guests who don't know. Yeah, not that you they did. I'm just pointing at <laughs> guests, you know, right? Right. So, yeah, yeah. so that's that's 
and I, and I think that's cool. Yeah. But I, for those that are listening online, I think it's important to recognize, and I'm just going to, you know, I'm, I'm facing you two guys, so I'll use you as an example. I've had Greg Upham at my home many times for a meal. I know the minhag for his family. We're having dairy. It's as simple as that. If we were going to have steak, it'd be hectured, and we're not going to have any dairy. Because I know his minhag. And I'm going to try and honor him if he comes over. Now, I've been over at Greg's house probably more times than he's been over my house. Same deal. Amazingly gracious and always sensitive to the other's minha. Now, you are my son-in-law. He gets points for that, I guess. Um, and of all of my sons-in-law and son, you're the only one who eats hectured meat. So when you come over for a barbecue, you know for sure the meat I'm going to serve you. Maybe not the other son's, but the meat I serve you is going to be hectored. You don't need to worry about it. You don't need to see the sticker. It's going to be that way because I'm going to honor the minhag you've chosen for your family. Very, very gracious. Of you so I, I think if um, we're going to... You might just, because there might be others listening. Yeah. Oh, hectored? Hectured. Well, I'm you, sorry. Okay. You say it's hectured, right, what does right, that right. mean? All right. So if, if, if meat has been, if anything's been hectured, it means it's got the seal uh, or the symbol on it that means that uh, it has been certified by a certifying authority as being kosher. It's it's uh, yeah. it's been rabbinically approved to have the correct cleanliness and separation of anything that's unclean in the making, preparation, and packaging of the product. Mm. And Gregory eats only textured meat. I eat any meat. As long as it's grass-fed, organic, all that kind of stuff, range-fed, and all Why that kind not? of deal. Yeah. Um, but I know that you eat only hectored meat. So again, I'm gonna I'm gonna do that for you because I want to honor you and your minhag when you come over here. Whether you're you're serving me only hectored meat when I go over to your house, great. You know that's it's it's not as important to me. But I think, I think I. As Greg and I have talked about this in the past, the beauty of Bella Torah is living up to what we're going to see later on as in Paul's words, uh, is, is honoring the other in their minhag and not putting them down or making them feel poorly about it or putting them on the spot, but outdoing them in love if we can. Uh, and I think Bella Torah as a whole is great at that. Uh, Agreed. For, for people coming in or for visiting one another and, and so forth. Um, but I would be remiss if I did not lift up my brother uh, and say that if he goes over, if he's invited over somebody's house, and I hope I'm doing the same, uh, if we're invited over somebody's house and they're unclear on our minhag, we're going to do everything we can to eat whatever's put in front of us and just deal with it. We're not going to ask the questions and, and wonder about stuff. We're, we're, going to, we're going to work on the unity and the love before we do the minha. And I think the reason we can do that is because it's minha and not halakha. 
So to take this back into a Christian perspective, if I could, to make sure we're not just talking about kosher food, which some of the listeners online might not understand or, or be doing. Um, or biblical kosher. Exactly. Right. What exactly right. does that mean? Yeah. yeah. So if we're talking about something that clearly in the word of God is something that believers, quote unquote, do not do, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about other things that may be, in some people's minds, a gray area. So when we get together, those gray areas are the things that we're, we're willing to let slide a little bit. When it comes to the commandments of God, there's no question. Those are uncompromised. To use some other examples, um, yeah, so Shabbat, um, I do not keep the Sabbath because the word keep, you know, the word keep is a translation of the Hebrew, which is uh, Shomer. And to be Shomer Shabbat is a defined thing. It's halakhic. And it's a halakhic definition. I am not that. Right? So, now, to most Messianics, and certainly to probably all Christians, they might look at my lifestyle on the Sabbath and say, he keeps the, he keeps the Sabbath. But... They would say that only because they don't know what the definition of keeping the Sabbath is. I do not keep the Sabbath because on community Shabbats, I'm driving here. That is that is not consistent with halakha, right? Um, because I have to drive here, I'm also carrying. That's not consistent with biblical. Um, but so, you know, um, I'm sure I mess one or two of the other malachot up occasionally, but, you know, but even though I don't turn lights on or off, I don't, uh, write on the Sabbath, I don't do many other things, I'm certainly don't cook, you know, um, you know, I'm not moving my... Sabbath candles and anything that would be muksa according to Halakha. I'm not. I'm doing all of that, but I'm still not keeping Shabbat because I'm not Shomer Shabbat. Now, I think we all understand that, but most Messianics yeah. and certainly almost all Christians don't really don't understand because they don't understand the definition of what it means to keep the Sabbath. Right. right. So. Well, so far we've got a couple good keywords here, right? So, so an unnecessary or a, a specifically hard burden is a really good keyword to keep in mind as we are thinking about how we implement some of the things that we're about to study into our lives. Another good ones that you just mentioned were community. What is the community doing? What are the people that you are looking up to do and how do they apply some of the, I think that's a better word, like how do you apply the Holocaust? Because you're right, I mean it's not like it's changing, it, that's unchanging, but how you do it or which ones you do that's sort of like up to each individual so that's kind of what I was wanting to get out so that because this is mostly for me like I'm kind of being selfish here because there's definitely times where 
I'll come across a law in, in like in Jewish law, and I'm just like, man, that is going to be if I did that for my family, you know, and all these things start going through your head, like, that's going to be really hard, like, is my family even going to understand, like, why we do that, like, what, what are my kids going to think, like, is anyone else doing that around me, so th that's sort of my, my thought process, and so whoever else is having those types of thoughts, I wanted to get a few good, helpful tips out there for how, how other men make those decisions. If, so, and just and real those quick, questions you, just, you just real quick, I want to make, really make sure too. people understand that I don't think it's possible to keep the Holocaust outside of community. So you brought up community, you brought up Holocaust. The, the two go hand in hand, right? I mean, you can't really keep the Holocaust, most any of it, without community. So if you're not in a community that's trying to keep it, 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 it you can't do it. It's, right. it's almost impossible. Right, yeah, that's really helpful. Well, we probably have time for one more example, like kind of, does anybody else have something like when you're, when you're studying the various rabbinic laws, like how, why you might apply one and the other, why you like Shabbat candles, but maybe why you don't do, you know, two days for each of the holidays outside of the land. I mean, there's like lots of examples, but you know what, anyone? You have some? Well, I, I was just trying to think like the zeal that we have towards one and to, to learn about it and to I guess to start applying that to the to the family I I guess just as we've come into the understanding of new things we want to try those and just mm. yeah what's the right way to do those okay. and just that's try to implement good. it that's where the community comes in that's a really good that's a really good perspective because <clears throat> For most of us who aren't raised in, yeah. you know, trying to keep Torah, however you understand that, there it, it is very much a it's an it's a process and it's a journey, you know, and um, uh, you know, an example of my own life is Modani. So those of you who are familiar with the Halakha, right? Simon two, something like that. Yeah, Shulchan Aruch. You know, for the morning rituals, right. the first thing you're supposed to do, as soon as you are conscious in the morning, before you even get out of bed, as soon as you become conscious, you are supposed to um, say the modani. Um, and so, several years ago, when I, after I learned that that you know, and I thought, hmm, that's kind of cool. The very first thought and the very first kind of thing that I would say. Thank you, Ben. Is thank you for res for returning my soul. soul. And I thought that is really cool. Um, and so I took that commandment, <clears throat> I took that halakha, that commandment, and chose to incorporate that in. But you know, but it took a while to get in the habit of doing that. Now it's like second nature to me, right? But it goes back to your point. It's like you first you but you learn, you become aware. Yeah. Then you you try to you know uh, how I take that into that. your into your walk, make that a part of your walk. Yeah. But it, it it doesn't normally just like happen, right? It's you know you have to you know it takes a while, then it becomes second nature to you. Right? But to quote my son, we're the only people on the planet that do what you just described. 
And I did exactly what you just described. We're the only people that do that. Orthodox Jews do it. Mm -hmm. That's what defines them as Orthodox Jews. Conservative Jews don't do it. Reformed Jews don't do well, it. Muslims don't even, do it. Christians even, don't do it. But Jew. we choose to say, I think I'll do that. We're the only ones that do that. Right. Which yeah. I think is cool, but it and, it does set us apart. And that's, and that's, that's, yeah, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, in my experience, some Orthodox Jews have said, you know, what I are have you to doing? do this, but you're, you're choosing, choosing to do, do this. Exactly. But even, but even Jew, even ethnically Jewish people, you know, I'm thinking of a situation of a Baal right? So a Jew right. who was maybe yeah. raised secular and then comes back to the Torah later mm -hmm. in life, his, that process he's, of that individual yeah, you're right. is very similar. You're right. He's got to add it, too. Yeah, just yeah. because he was Jewish, he still has to kind of learn. Right, right, right. And, yeah, yeah, I'm not... And, and, and we, we run into the problem sometimes, I think, of thinking of Judaism as North American Jewry. If you go into Israel... There's a lot more categories than yeah. Orthodox reforming. Absolutely, right. I, I'm just saying that no, no, as no. as a people group that looks at a, a particular minhag or halakha and tries to decide and, and decide to should I do that? Yeah, I think that's good to do. I think I'm going to do that. There's not a lot of people groups on the planet that do that. That is and true. messianics are one of the few. When, I don't think that's bad. I'm just saying it makes us unique. I was just going to say that like um, in Israel, for example, one of the groups that we would probably more closely identify with in a lot of ways is what they call traditionalists. Yeah. They're not orthodox, Dutchies. but they'll wear kippot sometimes. I think they even wear tzitzit on occasion. They'll probably keep Yom Kippur. They'll probably keep Pesach to some degree. Um, you know, they probably they may they're probably not eating pork. I would think, and probably not working on Shabbat. Now, other other standards. Very, yeah. as far as I understand, I'm not really familiar with their approach to Holocaust. But the point is that, like, that's a category of people that are they see it. They don't probably don't see it as as religiously as we would, because we would see it as like this is a responsibility before God it's and how more, we want to serve God. It's a cultural connection. It's more of a cultural right. connection, but it is more of a pick and choose approach to it, much like most messianics do. Hmm. Well, that's that's really helpful. We we can we can kind of move on, but I was hoping that we would get out some really helpful tidbits on uh, to, to satisfy those that are considering you know a, a particular halakha that they're trying to incorporate for their family and, and going through that process so thank you very much uh, the next the next uh, section here so one of the things that I had said in the very very beginning of this class when we had said we're gonna go through the whole apostolic scriptures and we went around the room we said what are your goals what I had in my head when I said well, I'd like to read the Gospels looking kind of for, for some halakha. What I had thought in my head was, I, I want to read the Gospels really paying attention to the descriptions of Yeshua's actions to determine if, like, there was something that I can do. And I found out quite quickly that his actions are pretty much, like, superhuman, and there is not really a whole lot that we just, like, look and see what he did and then say, like, well, I'm going to do that, too. Fasting 40 days and nights. I mean, there's just, <laughs> Walking I, on the wall. Every time, I, I, keep going, I just kept going to myself, like, well, that's certainly not halakha. That's certainly not something, like, everyone should do. <laughs> so then I realized I was kind of looking at it different uh, and the wrong approach to it. And the, the right approach, I think, is saying, all right, halakha is a definition. Halakha is essentially Jew Judaism's definition of that breaks up into there's three sources of halakha. Torah, rabbinic commandments and minhag, like those enduring customs. 
Minhag shows up twice, so that can be a little confusing, but enduring customs is sort of that idea of Minhag, and that is also a source of halakha, which means that they view all three of those as binding law, and, and there's various, you know, severities um, when it comes to actual, like, punishment and stuff like that, but nevertheless, that's sort of that, that mainline definition. So then, when you start thinking of it with that lens, I think it, it helps to go through it, not looking for what Yeshua did, but what he said to do. Because that's essentially how Halakha has been transmitted by rabbis. They said, you need to do it this way. Well, you need you to do, do it that way. Or what, it, well, sure, sure, to, to some extent. Mm -hmm. um, but then that has then been written down and, and codified. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I was just going to make one comment on Minhag. So Minhag <coughs> is binding to the community that it applies to. So, for example, uh, the Halakha says that a married woman should have her hair covered. Every Orthodox community, Ashkenaz, Sephardic, you know, Hasidic, whatever, all, all agree that's the, that's the Halakha for married women. <clears throat> How different communities observe that is more of a minhag. So if you are living, if you're living in a Chabad community, you're wearing, you know, the women are wearing wigs. If you're living in a, Saf uh, a, a Sephardic community, they're wearing tickles. Right. Um, and Sephardic halakha, uh, at least, um, again, I mean, there's even within, you know, there can be some different minhags, but a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of Sephardic poskines say that um, it is forbidden for a Sephardic woman to wear a wig because there's some issues in that camp with, okay, you're just covering your hair with some other lady's hair, right? Hmm. That that doesn't for them that doesn't address that doesn't the, the issue. So, but for other camps that's fine. But the point is, both camps are the women are covering their hair with something, right? But the minhag in those camps may may cause them to do it differently. Right. And if you're in those, if you're in that community, you're bound to do it that way. Right. Mm. So, Excellent. Yeah. 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 So now that we kind of understand, that's the definition of halakha, and that would absolutely have been how Yeshua would have understood, like the transmission of authority and why he uses some of that language. Mr. Spurlock has brought that up on several occasions, where that whole idea of binding and loosing, and you know, kind of passing on that authority to the disciples, like that's all like halakhic type of language. So. There's definitely an understanding throughout the Gospels of this sort of framework. So that's why it was important to sort of go through that from Judaism's perspective. And so then you, we've got one of the things that I wanted to look at here through the Gospels. And we can, this is a, meant to be something that you can kind of continue on and do on your own as well. We weren't going to try to go through like all the Holocaust tonight. Um, so, but there's three of those categories that apply to those, that source of Halakha, the, that, the laws instituted by rabbis. And I think that was probably going to be the most applicable here because the Torah, everybody agrees on that one. That's just, there's no question there. That, that is the first five books of the, of the Bible. Jewish, Jews, Christians, Yeshua, everyone would have known that. So the, the, the category, that source of halakha that we're really going to focus on are, is the one that the law is instituted by rabbis, right? So in greater Judaism, as we were just mentioning, that's standard shulchan rope. They make it very, very easy nowadays I don't know how hard that would have been before that. He would definitely relied a lot more on community back then. 
But um, after everything was codified uh, around 1500, everything written down in the Shulchan Aruch, now that's, that's just what you do. I mean, they, they toss you the book if you want to convert, and it's like, well, just do all this, and when you get good at it, then we'll, we'll talk, you know, basically. Um, so with these three, we've got the fence. We're, we're very familiar, I think, with that one, right? And I think we probably do this ourselves. We probably wouldn't want to call that halakha. We're coming up with it on our own. It's more like minhag. But that idea of saying, this is a mitzvah. That mitzvah is very, very hard for me. So I'm going to like, I'm going to take a couple steps back away from that to make sure that I never do that. You know, that I, that whole idea is, is what we're looking at here, the fence well, around the mitzvah. An example of a fence that probably a lot of people in this room keep to some degree is like the 18 minutes before you start Shabbat. So candle lighting time is technically not sundown. Right, it's but deliberately it's, before it. It's intentionally ahead of time so that you don't accidentally end up stumbling into actual Shabbat finishing things up. So if you stop your work 18 minutes before, then your clocks are off or that thing in the oven took five minutes longer than you thought it would or whatever, you haven't accidentally crossed into Shabbat. Right. Yeah, so, you know, I w- it's one of those things where, like, you know, in my family, we would, you know, we, we sometimes, if there's a need for some reason, we might fudge the 18 minutes, but... Generally speaking, we're, we're sticking pretty close to that one, specific, because it's a, it's a good safety <coughs> fence, so to speak. Absolutely. But it's not necessarily like, you know, it's not the same as the biblical commandment. Right, right. Yeah, good, good point, good point. And the next one is, is going to be, the, the, so that takana is that next category there, and that's the one that's like a, a law that's unrelated to a biblical commandment, but that has been set by a leader or an authority kind of for the welfare of the people. So the, the example that I had found was lighting Hanukkah candles, right? You I can't was, really tell. I'm surprised back. you said Hanukkah candles and not Shabbat candles. Well, yeah, they would they they would say that Shabbat candles is specifically derived from <clears throat> the commandment to set aside Shabbat, like to set it apart. Or whereas Hanukkah or, candles or specifically defining or remembering that we can't do this over the next 24 hours. Right, right. Whereas Hanukkah candles is kind of like, I'm sure you can you can try to... 25 hours. 25 hours, yeah. yeah. I was going yeah. to do 25. Yeah, so does that kind of make sense? Does yeah. anyone have any questions on that one? That one's probably the hardest to, to example to find in the Gospels because Yeshua is so focused on the, the Tanakh. I mean, I, it was it was really tricky for me to, to even come up with the one example that I had. I don't even know if that was a good one or not. So... Uh, but then that that last one there is the the minhag and that that um, the example of observing two yom tovs outside of the lamb. That's a perfect example because that was not derived from well, it was it was derived from a biblical commandment. But the the only reason for it was not a setting a fence around things as much as it was we are just really not sure and and this is just how we're going to do it. And that was they just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and then then it became halakha basically. Um, so. As we kind of go through uh, the examples there, we've, we're all familiar with that, the, the excellent one from Yeshua about adultery, setting a, a major fence there about looking at a woman with lust. And then, so then that next one though, um, I use the example of sort of this idea of a commandment of like anticipating Messiah because I, I was digging through the 613 and I couldn't really find a specific command to look forward to Messiah. It's a principle of faith from Maimonides, and it's alluded to in some other prophecy, for sure. But I thought this would kind of be a good one because I really couldn't find like an actual mitzvah 
in the first five books of the Bible that said you have to anticipate the coming of Messiah. But Yeshua does say it. So then, so, so that, that's an example of where we see, okay, well, Yeshua said it. So that means like there's a do there, and that kind of falls under this category. So this is a really good thing. And but obviously, if you were to ask any... For some reason, it's not rendering on that. What does he say? Oh, it says, you, must, uh, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so that, that whole, it's, it's sort of that, uh, that command to be, be ready and be anticipating the, the return of Messiah. Which is understood pretty universally by, by Orthodox Judaism as a very important point, especially with Chabad. I mean, that, they, they take that very, very serious to anticipate Messiah's return every single day. It's built into the prayers every day. I mean, that, that's huge. So I, w- I would say in Christianity, that's big too. But how you do it. Right, yeah. And, or how consistent it is. Right, it's just so wishy-washy. Is it every Sunday? I mean, as we grew up in the, in the church, you know, we should hasten the coming of Messiah. We should be looking up for our redemption draweth nigh and so on. But yeah. what practically do you do to prepare mm-hmm. and be ready? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, and then the an, an example of the like sort of the minhag there was um, was the blessing before. Um, that was just one that I, I kind of came up with too, because not necessarily. I mean, that that seems to be a tradition that is like since forever. I mean, it you know, especially within Judaism, um, it's just lasted so long. But we definitely have a very clear command to bless after we eat um, from Deuteronomy. So. That's why I sort of picked this one as the minhag because he definitely uh, Yeshua definitely demonstrates that over and over again. And the fact that it doesn't say that he blessed God after he ate, sort of we're all supposing. I mean, that we, we should assume that he did because that's a commandment. Mm-hmm. But the fact that it mentions in several on several occasions that he blessed God before he ate seems to be a pattern of establishing sort of like this this custom that I'm sure was not unique uh, to that time, but that he definitely demonstrated. Yeah, I think we need to be careful to, you know, especially for, for just non-Messianics who may be listening. I, I think it's important that we make sure we're clear that he was simply following the minhag of the day. And he was not the one who first prayed and, and blessed God before he ate. That was established long before he was born. What, yeah. it, um, can I pull up something from the Sermon on the Mount? And then yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that was the, that was the next piece there that I wanted to just kind of, I wanted to hear some people's can thoughts. Can I get something from Scripture? Let's be careful now, buddy. Well, like, well, here's, here's an interesting example of, of, I think, what Yeshua is alluding to a minhag that exists today um, when he references, you know, don't greet your only your brothers only. Well, in Judaism, the idea of a greeting is extremely important. Like, um, it, I think, uh, in fact, I think it's actually in the Shulchan Aruch something about, like, the importance of greeting your fellow Jews as you see them. Um, I know it's definitely a tradition espoused by a lot of rabbis to the point where, like, they would consider it, like, an, an, uh, an honor. Like, it, like a, a rabbi is especially well-known, like, if he could, he's the first guy to always greet someone. You don't want to be receiving a greeting. You want to be the one giving the greeting because it's, like, it's a big deal to give a greeting. So Yeshua is citing this, like, he uses the idea of greeting, which to us might seem kind of, like, almost weird. Like, I mean, does it even really matter? But um, 
he's using that idea because that's the tradition in Judaism. It's very important, the importance of greeting someone. So he uses that, greet, no greet your brothers only, as sort of playing off of that minhag to say, well, look, you, you may be really good at greeting all of your fellow Jews or greeting the, the Jews that agree with you or the Jews that you like, but if you're not greeting everybody, then you're, you're, you're essentially picking and choosing who you're loving, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, that's an excellent, that, excellent example. Absolutely. Yeah, so as we went through the Sermon on the Mount, was that, was that interesting to sort of be looking for it from the perspective of like what Yeshua is saying is sort of a commandment and trying to fit that into a category? Then we have some other examples of what they, what they thought. I was thinking that. Um, I mean, I guess a lot of these things, if you have such a good knowledge of <laughs> of the halakha, maybe you can find specific places where some of these are actual halakha. I don't know as much of that. So I figured that we're like putting them into these categories. I mean, some are definitely going into categories, the fences around adultery and things. Um, but then like for Minhag, I had the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, that it became That it became a Minhag. <coughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, so, that's a great, that's for a sure. great, that's a great example. Yeah, excellent. Lord's Prayer. So, and you know, one of the things in, in my personal, uh, you know, a personal minhag of me, um, uh, is when I pray the Amidah. I at the end of the Amidah, before I bow and take three steps backwards, I pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, as a as a way to connect to my Messiah, mm-hmm. and that's a minhag, right? And that's a great minhag, I think, for Messianic communities. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, that's a perfect example. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, excellent example. Another one that I was wondering about was kind of this idea of like, let you know, let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What I what I thought about was immediately like some of the tractates about all of the vows, because the the laws surrounding vows in in halakha, in Jewish halakha, are vast and they they encompass so many different scenarios that you just, you if you ever just read <laughs> one page of that, you would be like, yeah, never need to make a vow. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's amazing. And what I think is cool is it's sort of like a fence that Yeshua is setting here around how important what you say is and trying to be very, very uh, direct and, and have very high integrity when to make sure you do what you say um, because of just how much trouble you can be getting into. And on, on that example, I mean, you know, if you if you interact with <coughs> a devout Orthodox Jew, right, and you say, you ask him, hey, can you be at my house tomorrow at nine? The devout Orthodox Jew will say, yeah, I'll be there at nine, ain't nether. Right, they'll insert this little word at the end of their phrase, ain't nether or blee nether. Mm-hmm. Which is to say in Hebrew, without a vow. Like he's saying, yes, I'll be there, but I'm <laughs> not making a vow. Mm-hmm. And he's very, you know, devout Jews are very meticulous mm-hmm. that whenever they're making, whenever they're saying something affirmative like that, they always tack on a netter because they want to make it clear to everybody that 
and especially to God, that I'm not making a vow because if they don't tack that on, then they just it could be construed. They've made a, well, they've made an oath or a vow to be at your house at nine a.m. and if they fail to do that, that's a sin for them. Right, and it's similar. You get similar things too. So I think for like plans. Not like plans making to somebody else, but their own plans. You'll hear a lot like um, Yippers Rapashem, kind of the same idea. It's like, like Lord willing, right. like this is going to happen. But I mean, they're 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 admitting that they don't themselves have a guarantee that it will. Because the thing about we mentioned vows, uh, we just got done reading the four I wills, and that kind of is used. Well, essentially, that concept is part of what forms the basis for Judaism's understanding of vows. To the extent that, like, when you say "I will do something," that's taken pretty much like a vow. So it's, it's right. very, very serious. I, I, in my own practice, and this you see this very, you see this all the time in in Christian and Messianic groups. You know, um, oh, I'll pray for you. Mm-hmm. I'll pray. I'll pray about that for you. I'll do. I'll pray for you, sister. I'll pray for you, brother. <clears throat> all well intended, and in in many times they do. And I and I used to say that all the time, until I learned just how okay. I, I learned that I'm essentially making an oath when I do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You don't. You will very rarely hear me say affirmatively, "I'll pray. I'll pray that. I'll pray about that for you." Right. Now I may in fact be praying for you or uh, whatever the situation is. Right. But I I I really learned in my life that I was. I was using that phrase. I had learned to use that phrase flippantly. Flippantly. I was using it loosely. And that's that's a problem. Yeah, it is. So, just pray while you're saying it. Uh, oh, uh, sometimes I'll actually just Let's pray now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because that way I I do it and I and mm-hmm. I I'm not going to forget later and then whoops. I've started to tell people I will pray about that at least twice this week. <laughs> I'm going to write it down and I will do it twice this week I mean, I, uh, ad infinitum until it, it, I, I, I can't That's not, it's not going to yeah. Yeah. well um, the next uh, the next sort of section that I wanted to get into was it was refocusing some of our discussion on the, the fact that we are all non-Jews that was <clears> sort <throat> of the common thread that we were going through with this whole lesson and I, I had one example, not in the study, and then we had a couple there that showed like customs of, of Jews and how we sort of deal with that. But like an example um, that I was thinking of that I wanted to get your thoughts on was Yeshua specifically references when do you fast, hmm. and he says you should anoint your face, you should be very happy, like it's it, it happy. Be, well, wash your, your face. Your countenance, your countenance should, should be, not be down. Should not be right. Yeah. So so yeah. Um, don't look like you're fasting. Right, exactly. Don't look like you're, you're fasting. It's an interesting question on the timing for that. Because Judaism has like three different types of fasts. So you have like mandated, like biblical fasting. Then you have like, uh, you know, optional fast days that the community does. And then you have, well... If you're super rabbi, you're fasting, you know, Monday through Friday, you know, whatever, like, or Monday through Thursday, excuse me. The point is that, like, there's these, um, like, different levels of it, and it was true then, too. Like, there were some people who fasted, like, every Tuesday. That was the fast day for their community. But not everybody's doing that. 
So I guess the question I wonder, I would wonder about that one, the fasting one, is is Yeshua saying you should wash your face and so on for every fast day, or is it specifically the ones that are not like a, a community fast day? So it's like you're not trying to show off. If everybody's fasting, well, we expect that you're fasting, regardless of what your face looks like. I interpret it that way because it makes more sense. Right. I mean, Yom Kippur, everybody's fasting. That's a good one. Right? Everybody's fasting, and of course you have halakha that says you can't wash your face and you know or whatever, brush your teeth, or whatever. But um, but everybody would be in the same situation, and everybody knows that you're fasting. Right. I think it's really more uh, because, in my opinion, Yeshua has a lot more. He's teaching a lot more musar than he is halakha. He certainly has some things to say about halakha, and there certainly are some things that would become binding Minhag to his followers, for sure. But I think what he's really, I think that particular example, and the way I've always looked at it is, um, if you have chosen to take on a, to, to, to fast for whatever personal reason, if you walk into the room and, you know, oh, I've been fasting all night and all day, and, you know, what are you really doing, right? Uh, you know, you're running, the, you're running the risk somewhere of actually kind of boasting and saying, look how holy I am mm-hmm. and look, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and Yeshua is saying, no, if, if you're fasting for something, that's a, that's a personal, private decision between you and Hashem and you shouldn't be trying to make you know trying to make yourself look holier in the eyes of other people they should never know that you fast you were right. fasting that's kind of how I and that that makes sense for sure <clears throat> one of the things that was kind of the reason that it's probably more applicable today and for us as followers of Yeshua is because there's a good a, a good bit of the fast days are not required to take off of work so a lot of us are going to work like while we're fasting and it's neat that we can actually apply it from that perspective because, like you said, Yom Kippur, that's a given. Everybody that you would be hanging out with that day is fasting anyway. Not so, only that, the people that know that you keep the Torah right. know that you're fasting. Right, right. It's Yom Kippur. But yeah, but I think it's neat because we have an opportunity to kind of practice what Yeshua is, is teaching there on some of those days where we do go to work. And it's a, it's a sun, sundown or a sunrise to sundown fast. Right. Yeah. But even like, I'm thinking even more specifically to the very individual ones. Like, if you go into your Siddur, there's a little paragraph, mm. whoever's right. accepting a fast upon himself the next day. That's not the one you pray for one of the ones the community does. It's like right. an individual fast. You've also got, you've also got different interpret, like, approaches to certain fast days. If you flip to the um, Shabbat prayers, there's a little section there towards the end, um, around, um, uh, towards the end of the, of the morning sh- uh, Shakari service. Where they have a little section that's like if you if you're if for the people in the community they're fasting on the whatever the the fifth Thursday the second Thursday of Bahav or whatever like it's like these special fast days that some people choose to do after the big holidays to kind of be like okay God I may have, maybe I went a little too far there so I'm gonna take a fast day just kind of get myself focused again you know like so those um, like those are examples again of a more like almost like a voluntary yeah. fast. Yeah. Which I think is really what Yeshua is getting at. Sure. Um, yeah. So, like, if he, I mean, I do, like, I mean, if I go into work on a fast day, I, I'm not, I'm not doing the Jewish halakha of showing up, you know, looking particularly fasting. 
Um, nor am I sitting on the ground, which is another tradition for a lot of the especially Tishbaab. Yeah, but you wouldn't be going to work. Well, no. You don't go to work and sit down in, you in can. sackcloth I mean, and ashes. Well, and you don't sit and sit at the bank. That's not going to work. But I mean, you can't. Like, like I think. I mean, you're not. You're not told not to work. It's encouraged not to work. But right. I mean, there are certain traditions associated with fasting that Jews do do, especially on the big ones like Tishbaab, that I don't do. But I mean, I do think that Yeshua kind of gives. <clears throat> I don't know, maybe some something of it out there. But I do think his focus, though, is more on the other thing. And it go back to Mr. Evans' point. His focus is really more than anything on Musar. Yes. He's talking about the problem is people are doing this to show off. Right. The issue, because he, he links it, right? So fasting, prayer, and charity are all used together for this issue. You should be doing all three. His point is if you're doing all three in a way that's for display, then you're missing the whole point of doing them at all. And instead of getting giving glory to God, you're bringing glory to yourself, and therefore your reward is paid out in full, yeah. which is a which is a big deal. We have that whole little prayer at the beginning of the morning prayers. It's like these are the things you do to have reward in this world and in the world to come, right? So it's like you, there's the idea of of being of serving God the right way um, and receiving reward for that is extremely important in Judaism. And so Yeshua is emphasizing that with examples here. Exactly. And, and but to to the point of the the class, like I think those examples were exactly what his the people listening to him needed to hear, mm-hmm. right? Like sometimes it's it's helpful to have an example, like right. when you're when you're learning oh, yeah. something in Musar, you know. And so I and I think that's that's what's been really fun and refreshing to kind of go back through the Gospels and see the times that that Yeshua is like giving some really helpful Sorry. ways of doing something specifically. Uh, and uh, so anyway, yeah, that that's that was an example that I that kind of had there. The um, Greg, Greg, yeah, I want to define what musar is. For oh yeah, time. absolutely. I'm sorry. So <laughs> musar is essentially the the Jewish like a Hebrew word for that's like ethics is essentially like the Hebrew for that, and it's a a it's a uh, like a class of teaching within Judaism that focuses on character qualities. Right. So there's. Uh, you know, like yeah, generosity and and um, yeah, integrity and uh, you know, yeah, the, honesty. The, yeah, honesty. A lot of a lot of really neat ethical type of lessons. Uh, and there's there's several books that fall into that category of musar. And it's a, it's a whole like line of teaching within Judaism that uh, that has a, a focus on like it refining one's character. In fact, I've I found in uh, in some of the the material that Morgan's sort of brought into the marriage the marriage from like some of the Bill Gothard stuff the, the, a lot of it was focus on character right. and and focus on character from a biblical perspective and a lot of times it, it overlaps amazingly with uh, with Jewish Musar so yeah thank you that was a helpful helpful definition to throw out there so so did anyone kind of come across something mentioned. In the Gospels, or, or in mentioned in some of the readings that seem to be exclusive for Jews, besides the one that I listed. So I, I didn't, I listed them only be, just based on essentially the way that it was phrased. It was phrased kind of weird, right? So, like the thing about hand washing was phrased in a way where it was like, and this is the custom of the Jews, and the disciples weren't doing that. And then the next one well, was in that particular one, it didn't say that they weren't doing that. It just said that they did that. Okay. Well, okay, the right. context, the overall context was the Pharisees were calling out Yeshua's disciples for not doing it. Right. It is always... Right, so not in that specific verse, but yes, the context. 
Yeah. The next one was it's not a custom of them to enter a Gentile's dwelling. Well, we're going to go over that in much greater detail. And that as we get later in the lessons. And looking because at, we see that that's exactly what Peter was dealing with. Exactly. Sure. In right. Acts Absolutely. 10. And looking and looking at the three that you listed, those two, and then also the burial custom. Yeah. Um, that was the only one that I would say I'd have like a problem with. It's not going into the Gentiles' home simply because of the issue we were talking about earlier, the issue of division, because um, you know that. Uh, yeah, we all blew that tonight, didn't we? Right, right. Um, <laughs> but but it goes beyond that. I mean, to Mr. Upham's point, it is extrapolated to kind of anybody without your standard, so to speak, or whatever your community standard is. So uh, it does create an issue potentially of division, and I'm not saying to say that that one is. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't have the authority probably to say that it's wrong, but I'm just saying that'd be the one that I'd be most hesitant about out of those three. From a bur- burial perspective, it's like, I mean, hey, if you guys want to wrap me in linen and, and you know anoint my body, I'm cool with that. Yes, sir. Well, I was just, I was just gonna say, do Passover then? In context at the time, right? Um, with with very very little exception. If you were Gentile, you were pagan. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, today we have a whole class of Gentiles. That's true. That are not pagans, mm-hmm. um, and that have some sort of affinity and affiliation and acknowledgement of the God of Israel. Right. In this day and age, there were there were there were some people who had converted to Judaism. And then there were some who, you know, to term God fears, but they were very few and far between. The 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 gen, if you were non-Jewish, it was a very good chance that you were pagan. Which is in, in context dis- is important. It is, and I don't disagree, but I, I think we do need to remind everyone that by by this time. The court of the Gentiles was ginormous because there was, at that time, a large number of Gentiles who had joined themselves in some way, shape, or form to Judaism. But you're right. Other than those, if you were a Gentile, you were a pagan. But we need to remember that group. No, Because that group's important. But, But in context... Gentiles were pagan. Gentiles equal pagan. And in the apostolic scriptures, as you pointed out or brought up later, or maybe you didn't bring up and I did, the term Greek is virtually synonymous with non-Jew yeah. throughout the apostolic scriptures. And you also have to consider the other consider elements that are coming into this when you're talking about pagans. So a pagan is very likely to have idols in his or her home. Uh, it's extremely likely that everything that they're serving you to eat or drink has been offered to an idol at some point in the process. And when Grandma dies, she's probably going to be buried there in the wall. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of, of pagan customs that are um, dicey, to say the least, for a Jew to be around, not even I engaged have, in. I would have a little <laughs> you know, It's like, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be, I mean, not to, not to I mean, the best example that I could think of would be like if you were if you were in, you know, the middle of nowhere China today, and you got invited to some old farmer's home, 
and the first thing you walk into is a giant gold, you know, whatever statue, immediately you're going to feel uncomfortable. Whether or not you decide to leave the home is maybe, you know, a separate issue, but it's like that's definitely going to make you feel like, okay, what's going on here? You know, what do I, what is, what is okay, what's not? So that's really, that's part of the context behind the Jewish issue is, especially you're talking about temple times, and that changes a lot of things as well because in the case of this example, the reason why they didn't go into Pilate's home explicitly was because they were concerned about being right. unclean for Pesach. And so if you walk in and, you know, his grandma died, they haven't moved her out of the building yet, well, now, now you're stuck, you know, as an example. But uh, idol worship too? What's that? They would have idols too? And the pa uh, pagans? Pagan idols. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. But the other thing in context is at this time when we have um, Yeshua and then the immediately following Yeshua with the disciples, there is halakha that forbids them to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and it was called, they were known as the 18 Edicts of Shammai, right. which, you know, halakha does, does not change very often but this is one example where late, later later judges later um post-game uh, post or really uh uh dining Di dining i don't know how i don't know the plural is actually overturned to, uh i can't remember the exact timeline but call it into the first century somewhere so we, we even mentioned it on shabbat you know not like shemai right exactly that's why it's in there because it was later, oh, those those laws were eventually overturned and thrown out as, um, as inconsistent with Torah, right? right? Um, but the fact that, you know, we see the disciples being reluctant to interact with Gentiles in a certain way is... Because if they did interact in a certain way, they were potentially, if not in fact, violating the halakha that was in effect at that time. So, um, hmm. most people don't appreciate that. Sure, sure. And I think that that kind of gives us a good idea of how we are we find ourselves in a, a bit of an island as non-Jews and this is sort of my point in bringing this up because we I, I, we, we actually can't keep all of Halakha just being a Gentile <laughs> it, it excludes us from from several different things and, and there's there's lots of problems there so so since that's impossible that already puts us into an odd category and then you add on top of that the fact that we find, these scriptures to also be an authority in our lives, then we we're faced with like the dilemma of all right now how do we how do we deal with some of these things that that we come across and those are all excellent points and I, we will definitely get more into it in Acts about that one specific about entering a Gentile's Big dwelling, um, but yeah and some of the other ones were just there because they they mentioned that those were customs of the Jews and I was kind of wanting to bring up like. How do we deal with that? If there was a custom of the Jews, like, do we automatically write that off and think like, oh, well, that doesn't apply to me? Because that is technically a type of or a source of halakha. It's called a custom of the Jew. So 
our way we handle those should should be consistent with the way that we handle the rest of the, the, the halakha that we see in the Gospels. Um, so then, when it comes to like the non-Jews, there, there are definitely some examples that we've seen where Yeshua specifically references Gentiles and says, don't do it like them, basically. Um, and so, it's good to point out and good to, for us to be reviewing those to make sure that we, we do, at least don't act like Gentiles would have been acting back then, um, and that we find ourselves aligning closer, closer uh, with the disciples of Yeshua. Uh, but then also, there's a the, the couple of the points mentioning about the Greeks. I had kind of thrown that out there, that there's that passage where the Greeks, are, they come up to, to Jerusalem you know, to, to basically hear Yeshua. Um, and then, as you were pointing out, Mr. Martin, the, uh, the, the, one of the lepers was a Samaritan and was told to do the exact same thing as all the other Jews were, which was go and show yourself to the priest after you've been cleansed. So neat examples of the, the God-fearing Gentile, you know, and, and some of the terms used by rabbis who kind of like us are is more like the, uh, the idea of the gear, right? That the stranger, um, because that language is a lot more familiar to, to Jews throughout Torah as the, the, the person that's sort of with you but is still not a Jew as opposed to Gentile and some of the other words would be more associated with, with pagan. But yes? This conversation, this part of the conversation kind of reminds me of you know, in the morning blessings. Right? There's a morning blessing you know, blessed are you, Shem our God who has not made me a Gentile or a woman. Mm-hmm. Right, so the question I had asked myself is, do I pray that blessing or not? Everybody's mileage might vary. I pray it because in the context, at least in my research, in the context of when that pr- prayer was kind of formulated, yeah, crafted. it was in the context of a pagan, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas <laughs> I view myself more as a gear, right? Mm-hmm. Now, that's also a defined term, which you know, maybe I maybe I meet the definition or not according to Judaism. But in my own mind, I view myself more as someone who's you know sh- a stranger among, or at least about. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have a problem praying that morning blessing because in its context, I am not a pagan, right? Right. And I'm thankful yeah. to God that I'm not. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I pray that blessing. Yeah. You know, and happy to do it. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. Well, um, to wrap up, the uh, the last part there was was really again out of my own curiosity. There's, I'm sure everybody had remembers the various spots, and these were just a couple that I picked out where Yeshua specifically points out love, and one of the one of the uh, my, one of my favorite verses that kind of came out of the reading of the Gospels was definitely this idea of like by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another from John thirteen thirty five, and that that is very a, a very cool statement because it, it seems so doable it's it seems like so possible like wow we we could other people might know that we are disciples of our Rebbe Yeshua if we just do what he's saying here if we love one another. But, of course, that always begs the question, and this is possibly how a lot of the halakhic discussions came up, which is, how do we do that? What does that look like? And I wanted to get some thoughts on that, because there, there are several points, and these are just three, 
where this comes up over and over and over again. And love is definitely defined in, in the, the two of the greatest commandments, loving your neighbor as yourself, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. To the extent that, that Scripture expects that, I, I think we, a lot of us, as myself especially, fall short of that and striving every day to try to be better at that. But in this, in this context here, when Yeshua is commanding us, essentially, to have love to one another, give me some examples of what that looks like. Yes, sir. Well, first I would argue that even though you're, you, you've given three times where he's, this is a new commandment kind of thing. Um, John makes it clear, and he uses a phrase that the master used. Uh, when, when the master was asked about divorce, he says, from the beginning it wasn't this way. And I think we all understand that he's going back to the garden. He's, he's you know, that's the beginning. Well, John writes in 2 John 1, 5, Now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. So, it's my perspective that, as he did with so many other things, the master is, is trying to bring us back to the Torah and to the way he had intended that it would be. So, it's a new commandment, but guys, it's not that new. We've always had it. In Leviticus 19, you need to treat people like you want to be treated. You need to love them and so forth. And I think that he was trying to communicate that, for goodness sakes, if you live this out, if, if, you, if you didn't hear anything over the past three and a half years, if you live this out, they're going to know you're with me. Because it's the hallmark of the way I'm living. Because no greater love has a man well, but right. that he laid down his life. And that's exactly what he did. Well, and, and to tack on to that, that's why he says it's a new commandment. Because the Torah commandment from Leviticus is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So then he picks up on that and he says, I give you a new commandment, love your neighbor, not as yourself, as I have loved you. Mm. He just put a fence mm. around that commandment. Exactly. Or he upped the ante, however right. you want to describe that, because right. loving people as we love ourselves particularly in our society, is a fairly low standard. It's a low bar. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people, as evidenced by, you know, how many millions of people are on Prozac and other things, right, mm. that don't love themselves all that much. <laughs> um, but he demonstrated an unconditional love to the point of laying down his life, which Proverbs says, no greater love is there, right? right. So... It's new in the sense that it, it, it's not new in the sense that he wants you to love your neighbor. But the manner in which you do that is new because he's just Raised. put a fence or raised the standard around that Torah command. Amen. Yeah. Yes, sir. I was just going to say that um, you asked for an example. And I yeah. think that part of, part of the reason why Yeshua says this is what will make you 
be my disciples? You have to remember the context that he's speaking in. One of his primary critiques of the culture of his day was a lack of love. And it wasn't a lack of, you know, telling people I love you or giving out hugs. It was a lack of, <coughs> really, I think a better, almost a better word is like respect. <coughs> Bless you. For Bless you. you. For other Thank people yeah. in the in in the community, so as an example of what that was like here, it's like earlier I made a comment about um, the uh, four I wills forming the basis for the concept of what a vow is. That was technically a misspoke. That's more my opinion on, on kind of what those things are together. Ms. Drapman probably knows better than me about that. Did not choose to critique me or correct me in public. So not embarrassing your fellow mm-hmm. would be an example of loving your neighbor. That Yeshua is going for. In fact, I would go so far as to say that most of the times where he seems to really have an issue with the Pharisees calling on his disciples, it isn't necessarily that he's disagreeing with their halakha. It's that he's disagreeing with the way that they're they're sharing that. They are going out of their way to condemn his disciples who were nooblings at this stuff, or some, this, at least in terms of the depth of it, right? And they're not new to Judaism, but they're maybe new to the depth of halakha. And they're getting publicly criticized. And basically, I think Yeshua's got a problem with that because it's like, look, you know, let's let's encourage these guys and help them move along. Don't be calling them out in public because that's not the way that you show love to each other. And, you know, so I think that's really... He out in public. He does, but, several, see, but no, you know, he does do that. Them. And there is, a, there is a reason to do that. But I think that, I think the reason why he does that specifically is, I guess I'm trying to get at it, is like... Um, they were supposed Their to motive was to people. elevate themselves. Right. It's not the hypothesis. Yeshua's motive was not to elevate himself. He called right. them out. Right. Yes. And, and and it's almost like a from what who much is given, much is required kind of thing. It's like they just they should know better. And 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 really, if you look at the context of of why Judaism believes the Second Temple was destroyed, the, the sin of that era was what they called baseless hatred. The idea being that Jews were, were, were fighting with Jews, not just physically, but there was there was a lot of issues, backstabbing, slander, whatever else. Heck, before that, they were killing each other. In some cases, literally killing each other. But the point is that there was not a la- it was a lack of unity. It was built-in division, and that's a major problem. And 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 so it's something that um, I think Yeshua was specifically targeting. So when he says you're going to be my disciples because you love one another. I think what he's getting at is kind of what we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. You're going to go over to somebody's house, and they're and you're not going to like grill them exactly <laughs> grill them on what meat they're serving you per se. You're gonna you're gonna you're gonna hope for the best, and they're gonna they're gonna hopefully respect you well enough to follow your standard, and that's an example of love. I mean, I can't help but think about the fact that whenever some of the rabbi friends that we've known have come over to one of these houses, and they get right up to the very edge, oftentimes, of what's allowed, halakhically. You know, uh, not they don't, they don't go over the line, but they try, they try very, very hard to be a part of the community, uh, even though they're not really part of our community. And I respect that so much, because I know that the easier thing to do is to set your standard way up here and look down your nose at everybody else who's not doing what you're doing. To keep the warm. Yeah. They keep it a wall, right? In, in fact, within within halakhic um, circles of Judaism, it is the poskim who are able to find leniencies in the halakha that are ultimately 
revered as the most as the as the best right. poskin mm-hmm. because if you're a posek and you're actually making legal rulings again there is a huge responsibility on them personally if they get that wrong. Mm-hmm. So because of the sheer magnitude of the responsibility, it's much easier to be extremely machmir, strict. Because that way they're, they're good. They, they set the standard and nobody can ever accuse them, least of whom God, that they somehow gave permission to violate the Torah in some way, right? right? So it's very easy to be very strict. But the greatest poskim will find ways to be as lenient as they can, and they actually have to know the Torah better right. mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's an excellent point. And the, the, uh, you, Mr. Upham, you touched on exactly what I think was, was key yeah. here in understanding the idea of love better, because the, the part of why this was such an interesting statement was because of the context of all these people that were there. You've got religious leaders, you've got people that have been studying Torah way longer than all these disciples, but somehow the disciples were going to like stand out from everyone else and by loving? Like, did, did the Pharisees not love each other? Like, were they, were they not showing love? I mean, like, why, why would this make them look any different? And I think it came back to exactly what you said, where Yeshua ups the ante and inserts himself as the standard, and that standard is like the top shelf selflessness. And that, I think, is, is the most unique perspective on this idea of love. One of the, uh, I always have this in the back of my head because, of course, I've witnessed it several occasions, but I've heard from somewhere that the best demonstration of love you could ever see in this life is, like, the love that a mother has for their child because it's pure selflessness. Like, that love just is, it's not <clears throat> expecting anything in return because the baby can't do anything. And, uh, and I always love that because I think to myself, like, that is exactly how love should be. It should be like a 100%, 0% idea where it's like totally selfless, n- no expectations. Yeshua reiterates that over and over again about you know, inviting the poor so that they can't give back to you. Don't just right. greet the people that greet you. You know, I, I mean, he, So he, he's big on that, but excellent point. And I, I really think that ties in all of these, these verses because it does sound a lot like Halakha here. It sounds a lot like he's saying, this is a commandment that I'm giving you. You need to do this. So I wanted to make sure that we had a good understanding of what that looked like and, and why we would look different if we did it this way. And I do think we would and do look very different. Our community especially, I feel very blessed to be a part of this community and a part of, of all of your lives because I do feel like we, we are, as a community, a very selfless community. People drop what they're doing and help move People are providing tons of stuff when people have babies and when, when there's weddings happening. And, and it's just time and again, and especially all of the prayers and help that I received personally when I had lost my job recently. It was just, it was very selfless of this community, how they reached out to me. And, and it, was, it was a beautiful demonstration of exactly what Yeshua was talking about here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, I was just going to mention that by, uh, by elevating the standard, Yeshua was using himself as the picture of love, mm. which is the ultimate picture of humility. Oh, yeah. yeah. Upping the standard was a standard of humility. Yeah, excellent. Mm. Agreed. Raising the standard 
looks like lowering looks yourself. Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. Seems yeah. like I've read that a few times somewhere. I'm trying to <laughs> well, I feel like that's a, that's a good note for us to end on because uh, I hope that this was encouraging and that as you continue to go through, you can kind of use this framework to pick out those parts of, of Scripture that sound a lot like Halakha and then, you know, kind of go back, you can, you know, if you want to, the Shulchan Aruch, the Kitzer Shulchan Aruch is actually online too, that sometimes it's fun to see if, if you can do a quick search and match up some things from that perspective. But certainly as we go through, we're seeing like, how can we, how, how is this going to impact our lives for the better? How do we look different when we read the Gospels? And especially now, as we start getting into what the apostles have written, Yeshua is clear, they've got that authority. And so... How, how is our life going to look different as we as we read and study their words as well? Um, so it's a good it's a good thing to end on there. You know, uh, any other comments? Yeah, Matthew five nineteen. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It, that's exactly the same Greek word, luo, to loose, that you quoted in Matthew 16. So the, the finding and loosing that has to do with uh, minhag and halakhic authority and so forth is the same word. So if we're, if we're going to go back to Matthew 5, which I think is uh, a hallmark for the messianic believers right that you know if you love me you're going to keep my commandments oops that's a, that's a whole lifestyle and that's what we're talking about um, same word so we need to we need to be careful in that regard I think so excellent good I think job that, Gregory yeah thank you very much let's uh, leave the last one here Mr. Oak do you want to do that for us closing us out. We thank you, Adonai, our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. Hmm. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, they arise early with idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction as it is written, and you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction, men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days, but as uh, but as uh, as as for us, we will trust in you. Amen.